It's generated the two largest U.S. goods deficits with the world that the United States has seen since July 4th, 1776. Other than hurting, you know, shareholders, businesses, workers, farmers, ranchers, and consumers, the tariffs are perfectly fine. Welcome to the Stratfor Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Roger Baker, in for Fred Burton. Today I'm speaking with David J. Firestein, who is the inaugural president and CEO of the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. A career diplomat, Mr. Firestein played an active role advancing U.S.-China trade. Welcome to the podcast, David. Roger, thank you very much. Uh, despite the global economic slowdown caused by the coronavirus pandemic, the, we've seen an escalation in the trade conflict between the United States and China. The phased one agreement at the beginning of the year was seen as a potential truce in the trade war. How have you seen the coronavirus outbreak impact the direction of U.S.-China trade negotiations? Well, Roger, um, I think it's had a very significant impact. Um, I think a lot of people were skeptical, uh, even when the phase one trade deal was signed in January, uh, that things would go as smoothly as they were kind of billed at the time. Uh, oftentimes in U.S. China, in the history of U.S. China relations, you've had agreements that have been reached uh, nominally, uh, but a lot of the problem has been with the implementation of those agreements. So while the, the deal was certainly regarded um, as a positive step uh, in the right direction relative to where the U.S.-China trade relationship had been uh, in the months and really the year and a half prior to the signing of that agreement, I think there was a certain healthy skepticism uh, that was out there as to whether uh, this would actually um, kind of close this chapter of U.S.-China trade frictions. That all being said, with COVID-19, uh, unquestionably, uh, the, uh, the the severe impact that COVID-19 has had on both the Chinese economy, the U.S. economy, and the global economy has really kind of generated an all-bets-are-off type of a uh, scenario, I think, with, with the agreement. A lot of the things that China pledged to do and that were part of the agreement uh, were really not feasible in, uh, given uh, the damage that COVID-19 had done to China's economy, to uh, trade flows, et cetera. And so I think, um, you know, frankly, uh, it's, uh, I think, questionable uh, as to whether uh, the phase one, you know, when the phase one trade agreement is really going to be brought to fruition. Uh, and now, obviously, there's a, a very different sentiment. Uh, even than we, than what we had in January, uh, in term at least from a U.S. perspective, in terms of U.S.-China relations. Remember, in in uh, January, I think on January 21st, uh, President Trump actually said in Davos, and these are his words are very close to them. Um, the U.S.-China relationship right now uh, is the best that it's ever been. Uh, those were his words, are very close paraphrasing. Um, that's what he said in January, and obviously. Uh, four months later, uh, we're in a very different place. So I think uh, it's going to be um, a, a long haul. And I think uh, trade is obviously an important, very important element of the U.S.-China relationship, but one that is now bound up even more deeply with uh, some really contentious uh, rhetoric uh, and um, a very negative tonality in the relationship right now. Well, building off of that, when we look, we see... Um 
mistrust and apprehension rising in public opinion on both sides of the Pacific. Um, do you, how do you see this COVID crisis shaping the popular narratives in China and the United States? And how does this intersect with the political pressures um, on the governments and the policies of the respective governments? Well, I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, what we see now is um, a very serious contestation uh, in the area of uh, really the narrative uh, for the relationship as a whole, and most specifically at the moment, the narrative around COVID-19. And China has its particular take on, you know, how things developed uh, the U.S., uh, mostly in the in the sort of person of President Trump and the Trump administration, but also the Republican Party in Washington, uh, both in the executive and legislative branches, uh, have a very different take. And um, I think what we see now is a kind of battle for the the narrative uh, of what happened with COVID nineteen, um, and uh, it's been. Uh, the, the rhetoric, I think, particularly on the United States side, frankly, has gotten very nasty and very extreme um, to the point where you now have the sitting U.S. president, President Trump, actually openly musing about the possibility of derecognition, or as he put it, cutting off the whole relationship. Those were his exact words. Uh, and if, if by that he means literally cutting off the diplomatic relationship with China, and placing China into a category that includes Iran, that for the United States, includes Iran, Syria, and North Korea, that would be one of the most dramatic events to occur in international relations uh, in recent decades. Um, it's not clear that that's what he means, but he said cutting off the whole relationship. And that's, a, that's emblematic of where the rhetoric now is. And uh, so I think we have um, a very serious contestation of um, of narratives. Um, and I think it's uh, kind of a self, um, a self-perpetuating cycle of vitriol and one that is, I think, doing some very serious damage to the fabric of U.S.-China relations, whether from a Chinese perspective or from a U.S. perspective. Um, I think it's, a, it's an unfortunate and dangerous situation because, like many people, I subscribe to the view that a lot of the toughest issues in the world today uh, need to be addressed um, in a functional way by both the United States and China, among others. And if we have this level of breakdown and this level of dysfunctionality in the relationship, I don't think that's good for the United States. I don't think it's good for China or the rest of the world. And hopefully we can um, you know, get to a point where we get back to some level of normalcy, but I don't think that's going to happen for quite some time. Well, play, playing a little bit on that, when, you know, if you think about it, there's... Um... There's supporters and critics of the U.S. administration's use of tariffs, uh, trade renegotiations. Um, the, the United States doesn't appear to only target its competitors. It's going after some of its partners. Uh, you recently co-authored a piece in The Diplomat um, uh, sort of are urging the removal of tariffs to help resolve the current economic crisis. Um, how are the economics of impact of, of COVID reshaping this debate over tariffs um, and do you think the crisis leads to renewed cooperation or do we see further retrenchment? Well, those are great questions. And, and first on tariffs, uh, it's true that I have um, been, you know, one of the leading voices, I think, in this country, among others, um, really saying that the tariffs make no sense for the United States. And I said that before COVID-19, but it's all the more true today. 
the fact is, just taking publicly available empirical data from the Trump administration itself, based on Trump administration data, the Trump administration has generated the largest goods deficit with China in the history of the United States uh, in 2018, over $400 billion. I think it was $419 billion to be specific. It's also generated the largest average annual deficit, goods deficit with China in the history of the United States when comparing the three years of the Trump administration with the entireties of all previous presidential administrations. It's also generated the two largest U.S. goods deficits with the world that the United States has seen since July 4th, 1776, as well as a decline in manufacturing jobs and an increase in prices for both producers and consumers in this country. By any metric that you would want to use to assess the efficacy uh, of tariff policies, uh, these policies have unequivocally been a failure for the United States. They've been bad for America. And as I've said before, they have hurt America first and hurt America worst. It's just not a smart way to go. Uh, or, you know, another way to put it is other than hurting, you know, shareholders, businesses, workers, farmers, ranchers, and consumers, um, the tariffs are perfectly fine. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a good strategy and the numbers bear that out. To your question about the impact of COVID-19, what COVID-19 does uh, with respect to the issue of tariffs is it, it ups the ante considerably because some of the tariffed goods, some of the goods that the Trump administration has placed tariffs on are goods that doctors and hospitals need to save American lives. And those goods are more expensive and therefore scarcer and harder to come by because of the tariffs. So as I noted in the article, uh, along with my co-authors, uh, bipartisan group, by the way, um, the fact is uh, tariffs are not only costing Americans money and jobs, uh, which is empirically true, they're also costing American lives. And that's why um, I've been very outspoken, along with some others, uh, in making the point that uh, because of COVID-19, the tariffs, uh, if if there was ever a good time for tariffs, and I, I don't think there was, but if there ever was an appropriate time, this is not that time. To save American jobs and to save American lives and uh, livelihoods and lives, uh, we need to get rid of those tariffs now and at, at a minimum indefinitely suspend them uh, so that this economy can uh, try to move forward at a very difficult time with nearly 15% unemployment without one hand tariffed behind our back. We'll get back to our conversation with David Firestein in just a moment, but I wanted to speak to you first about why Stratforce content is an extraordinary value in these extraordinary times. The real-time challenges of living in an increasingly interconnected world have rarely been more clearly on display as they have in 2020. The coronavirus pandemic has affected every single aspect of government, business, life, and technology. How we manage associated risks has direct implications for the broader public interest. Right now, individuals and businesses are turning to Stratfor and RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Together, Stratfor and Rain help you understand the why behind what's happening now. Because what happens next, well, that's up to you. 
Find out how Stratfor and Rain can help you at rainnetwork.com. Thanks. The um, COVID crisis has reiterated to, to many people uh, some of the the challenges of globalized supply chains, and that for all of their benefits, there are certainly challenges in there, um, risks that are that are built into having these very far distributed supply chains. Disruptions in one place can ripple through to other places. Um, and an argument on tariffs is that tariffs are only effective uh, in changing those issues of supply chain and distributed uh, manufacturing and 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 not reshoring if they're able to be put in place in a long permanent uh, position, that the the very likelihood of the flexibility of tariffs make them uh, weak. How does a, a government, whether it's the Trump administration or or if there's a different, you know, another administration that's going to follow, uh, balance the the reality of risks of very extreme supply chains um, with uh, the benefits and find ways to uh, restructure uh, domestic opportunity. Um, because I think that, that while the tariffs may be a blunt tool, uh, clearly there are uh, recognitions within the United States that there are weaknesses in over-dependence abroad. Well, uh, there's no question uh, that when you have a supply chain that extends out um, into the global economy, that it does open up some level of risk. And historically, for decades and decades, U.S. companies and their boards and their leaderships have looked at that. Um, and the American people, I think, have looked at that and seen that as an acceptable risk. At this particular moment in time, in the midst of a, an incredible uh, and really horrible COVID-19 crisis, when Americans are dying, we're up right around 100,000 deaths from COVID-19, uh, many more uh, cases of it that are out there. Uh, from the perspective of where we are right now, I think, understandably, uh, there is a sense across the country that maybe we accept too much risk. But bear in mind that the system generally worked um, really well in terms of generating prosperity uh, for all involved um, for decades. And I think there will probably come a time when when, when we get past COVID-19 and past the, the sort of fierce urgency of now, if you will, uh, to use the Obama phrase of sort of we're in the midst of a public health crisis that is very serious. Um, when we get beyond that and back to a more level uh, keel in this country, that so something more approximating kind of the normal uh, you know, normal life in America, we may uh, have a, a somewhat different perspective. Um, I think, you know, at a very fundamental and philosophical level, Either a person does or doesn't embrace the economic construct uh, and the international economic construct of comparative advantage. Um, and uh, I embrace it. I, I believe in uh, the notion that when countries play to their comparative advantages and trade on that basis, uh, which is the basis for the world trading system that we've had for decades, that the U.S. shaped, by the way, uh, disproportionately, that that. The, the pie gets bigger and everybody ends up better off. Um, yes, there are problems with that system in terms of distribution uh, of, of uh, unequal distribution of wealth, et cetera. That's been very um, amply discussed. Um, and, you know, it's an, it's a public policy issue for every government. But on the whole, the idea that the pie gets bigger, I think, is not until the Trump administration ever been seriously contested. Uh, so um, I think, 
the, the, the point that I would make is that the question is whether companies ought to be able to make these decisions for themselves pursuant to uh, long-established American doctrine, otherwise known as the, Ameri- the market economy construct, or whether governments ought to make these decisions for companies. I fall into the camp uh, unapologetically that I think companies ought to be able to make the decisions that they believe are best for them within the constraints of law and policy, and that basically uh, they ought to be able to make these judgments and manage that risk as corporate matters. And I think what we see and what we have seen over the last three years is that this administration believes very clearly, and like-minded people in Congress and others, that no, it ought to be the government that makes these decisions. And again, this is probably why Ronald Reagan's daughter uh, said on the record uh, on television that uh, her father, Ronald Reagan, is turning over in his grave at what's happening in this country uh, under the leadership of a nominally Republican administration. In in teasing out two areas where where we can look at the concept of competitive advantage, um, technology and agriculture. The United States is obviously a key agricultural producer. China is a key agricultural consumer. The United States has had a lead in technology, but clearly China is now competing in that space. Both of those items, agriculture and technology, are frequent st- frequent sticking points in trade arrangements around the world. Both have been used as tools of political and economic advantage and leverage by the United States and China. Um, what makes those two particularly contentious in the U.S.-China relations? Well, uh, a couple of things. First, with respect to uh, – and because you rightly note that those are contentious issues, and they're contentious, I think, for different reasons um, – in terms of agriculture, one thing that I think is often lost on um, people that talk about the trade deficit, sometimes without a very deep understanding of the numbers, the facts, the figures, and so on, um, is that we actually have had an agricultural trade surplus with China for years. And ironically, and I would say perversely or ironically, uh, the Trump administration's policies have actually um, chipped away at the surplus uh, by making it harder for Americans farmers to sell um, their goods, their produce uh, to, including, for example, soybeans and many other things, to China. Um, you know, we actually have an administration uh, that would rather pay farmers uh, a government handout than have those farmers sell their uh, produce to China. So another way to put that is we have. A government in this country, the Trump administration, that is uh, paying farmers an income they don't need or want with money that America doesn't have. If that's not a good working definition of old school socialism, I don't know what is. But the policies that have been put in place with respect to agriculture have actually taken what was a strength and a surplus area in the trade relationship and actually jeopardized uh, that strength and weakened uh, our ability to get goods into the Chinese market. That's why so many farmers are adamantly against the tariffs. Um, so um, why is it important or contentious politically? I think the politics of agriculture in this country play into it, um, namely uh, the fact that agriculture is disproportionately um, a heartland uh, enterprise um, uh, it's, um, it, it happens to be located that is agricultural production happens to be located disproportionately in an area that is politically president Trump's base or a big, a big swath of his political base. And so I think this becomes a very contentious issue. 
And I think parenthetically that one of the reasons that President Trump wanted to end the trade war or at least get to a so-called phase one trade deal in January is because he recognized that the longer this trade war goes on, the more pain he is causing to his own uh, presumed uh, base and and constituents. And obviously COVID-19 threw a wrench into that. Technology, to your other question, is, is I think a different dynamic. And I think there is legitimate concern in the United States about China's um, appropriation of technology, its use of technology, its competition with the United States uh, in the area of technology where we have had a historical comparative and current, in many ways, comparative advantage. Um, And I think those concerns are legitimate. But I think the trick is, from a public policy standpoint, to actually find a solution to the problem that isn't worse than the problem. Uh, By the way, I think tariffs were a solution to the trade deficit that ended up being worse than the trade deficit because as a result, we ended up with higher deficits. So uh, I think the same can be true in terms of technology. We have to be very careful about the public policy prescription to the issue, to the legitimate concerns that Americans have about uh, the technology competition between the United States and China. And here, the issue I think is less politics and more national security Obviously, there are a lot of people that I think are rightly concerned uh, about whether China is, quote, catching up to the United States technologically and arguably militarily in terms of military applications of technology. And those are absolutely legitimate concerns. Um, The question is, how do you address those concerns in terms of public policy in ways that don't throttle the free market construct, which has been uh, the driver of American prosperity for decades? and in ways that uh, still allow companies to make decisions based on um, the kinds of inputs that companies uh, generally take into account. It's a fine balance. I think some of the legislation and some of the policies that the United States has enacted over the last three years uh, make sense. I think others have overreached and generated results that are uh, suboptimal. And it's going to be a work in progress for us as a nation to get uh, the prescription to the uh, to the disease uh, right, um, even as many Americans agree with the description of what uh, what the problems are. Given the complexity of, of the the U.S. China relationship um, and the the added uh, intensification due to the COVID crisis, really, um, just in the short term, how do you see the U.S. China relationship evolving? Say over the next two years, as the world tries to climb out of. Uh, the economic crisis triggered by this COVID outbreak? Well, I think um, the first point that I would make, Roger, is that um, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has been a game changer for one very particular re- uh, reason. You know, we've had shocks to the system in U.S.-China relations um, during the 40-plus years of uh, that we've had normalized diplomatic relations, and most notably, of course, in 1989, uh, with the events of June 1989. And that was a major shock to U.S.-China relations, and it had a, a significant and uh, real effect on public opinion and the uh, U.S. sentiment toward China. And not since then have we seen another shock of this magnitude. And this one, I think, the COVID-19 um, uh, issue, I think now is another major milestone and turning point uh, in the overall arc of how the U.S.-China relationship um, is evolving. Um, I think one of the points uh, that I would make is that one of the differentiators in terms of COVID-19 is that uh, for the first time since the United States and China normalized relations, 
um, a good swath of Washington, maybe the majority of Washington, and I think in fairness on both sides of the aisle, but with Republicans far more outspoken about it than Democrats, but also in the general public, there is now a belief um, that has been fueled by very disciplined and relentless communication around these talking points, mostly on the part of the Republican Party, that China has done something that has literally taken American lives. Uh, that in the words or the, w- w- the way that these folks uh, that hold this view might phrase it, that China has unleashed COVID-19 on the United States and on the world. And the last time you had a case in which a Chinese action actually took American life on any scale uh, or really at all was in the Korean War uh, when Chinese troops and American troops faced each other on the battlefield in the 19, early 1950s. Um, so, uh, you know, Tiananmen, trade friction, South China Sea, various issues that come up, human rights issues, Xinjiang and so on. They're issues that are important to many people in the United States, but they don't result in the loss of American life. COVID-19 has resulted unquestionably in the loss of American life. And in the view of those who think that China, quote, unleashed this on the United States, then China is culpable for that. That's the game changer. That's why people are looking at China uh, differently today uh, than they did uh, literally four months ago when President Trump stated that the U.S.-China publicly stated that the U.S.-China relationship was the best that it had ever been. So um, that's what's different. And as a result, to your question about where do I see the relationship going over the next two years, um, honestly, I think the outlook uh, over that period, over this year and into next year, uh, and perhaps beyond, is quite bleak. Um, I think uh, I don't see a light at the end of this tunnel uh, at this particular time. COVID-19, I think, has done something that the trade wars didn't do uh, because it has generated loss of life and obviously a massive hit uh, on the U.S. economy um, in a way that uh, even the trade wars didn't. And moreover, uh, most Americans understood that President Trump was responsible for the trade war uh, and for adopting tariffs, which made things more expensive to consumers, made things more expensive to producers and so on. But in this instance, um, the American people seemingly are increasingly blaming China for um, COVID-19's rampage, and that changes uh, the political dynamics as well. So I think um, I think the U.S.-China relationship for the foreseeable future, certainly through the U.S. presidential election in, er- in early November of this year, and I think well beyond, uh, are going to be very tough, very contentious, And um, I don't think we have seen the bottom yet. Um, We have a president openly musing about the possibility of derecognition, not saying that that's necessarily going to happen. But with this president, I don't think you can rule anything out. Um, And I think that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Well, I think there's certainly a lot more we could be talking about, but I think that's the time that we have for today. So, David, I want to thank you for speaking with me. Uh, Roger, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. David Feierstein is president and CEO of the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. You can read more about U.S.-China trade tensions and the battle for global supremacy at Stratfor Worldview. Podcast listeners get a special offer. Go to stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I'm Roger Baker, and thank you for listening.